This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll learn about the wines of a new coastal appellation in San Luis Obispo. And it encompasses the land basically from San Lucia Mountains to the Pacific Ocean, San Simeon down to Napomo. Also, we have a conversation with musician Jake Blunt, who performed recently on the Central Coast. When the race records and hillbilly records were being split, these were musicians who'd been playing alongside each other. They would have all played a little bit of each other's music. The record industry in those early days created a financial incentive for black people to sound one way so their records would sell, and white people to sound one way so their records would sell these stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, December 5th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. Betsy Nash is the grape nut at KCBX, and she's learning with us about a new wine appellation on the Central Coast. It's in San Luis Obispo County, and she reports from last month's Harvest on the Coast Wine Festival in Avila Beach. Before I begin today's program, I, I, have, I have a few personal comments because I lost a wonderful, long-time, creative and active friend uh, just a few days ago. And you know how we say sometimes that, oh yeah, somebody's all about that. Well, Lois was all about inventing and being creative with her hands and being active and being a philanthropist and being a Buddhist. There was no ego involved. She was just all about doing good in the world. I say this because sometimes we say people, oh yeah, I'm all about wine. Lois wasn't. And yet she loved a good Cabernet. Okay, she loved a, even a mediocre Cabernet Sauvignon. But the point was, and what makes me think about it today, is that even once she was getting closer and closer to her passing, perhaps a week away, she still loved to have that little sip, little glass of cab. She was in her hospital bed at her home with her great ocean view and it brought great comfort to her. But before she got in a lot of pain that needed to be medicated, she still enjoyed the pleasure of that glass of wine. And I am so struck by that now in retrospect about how much wine does have so much meaning, even if it's not all about you and all about your relationship with wine. Anyway, thoughts from the grape nut as I get ready to tell you about a wonderful experience about a big wine festival in Avila that I was able to attend. Well, this is living, Ernie. I'm at the Harvest on the Coast in Avila Beach, and it is a beautiful evening. The sun has just gone down. There are 17 wineries here from the Appalachian, the brand new Appalachian for Slow Coast. This is a gorgeous evening and I'm getting to taste lots of wines from this brand new Appalachian. Welcome to the Grape Nut. We're talking tonight, oh man, this is gonna be so great. It's called Harvest on the Coast and it's like been happening for years, but we are celebrating a brand new Appalachian in San Luis Obispo County. And I'm talking with Dan Fredman from- San Luis Obispo Wine Collective. What's going on tonight and this weekend? Well, it's the uh, annual Harvest on the Coast celebration where all the wineries or significant number of our members get together 
pour wine. We've got an auction. We just an opportunity to come out and taste all sorts of wines, all made within the San Luis Obispo Coast AVA. And that Coast AVA is new, right? Pretty new. Started uh, earlier this year. Yeah. And it encompasses the, the, the land basically from San Lucia Mountains to the Pacific Ocean, basically San Simeon down to Napomo. I didn't realize we had enough wineries to make up an appellation, but maybe that's not what it requires. It's all about the uniqueness of the vineyards and the terroir and just everything that sets us apart from everybody else. And one of the things is virtually all of our vineyards are within about five miles of the coast. So the influence is it's really cool weather. You get fog, you get wind, and it is so different from over the hill in Paso Robles. Oh, exactly, or even in the Edna Valley where it still warms up. Not, not, not that much. That's Edna. what I said, not that much. <laughs> Edna is part of our, uh, oh. our group. We, we overlay Edna and, and Royal Grandy. Oh, fine, you set me up for that one. Sorry. <laughs> Dan, tell me again what it is about the new Appalachian. It's very close to the coast, which we know means lighter wines, it means more Chardonnays, is that right? Yes and no. Uh, it's a cooler climate, so grapes take longer to evolve and it'll take long, longer to ripen to the point where they should be picked. Um, and because of that, uh, they also have better acidity. So the wines tend to be better balanced, they're more food friendly, and they can, because of the balance, you can age them for, for quite a long time and they'll evolve in your cellar if you have a cellar and if you can stay away from them long <laughs> enough. I got to tell you, I've got some wines. I'm a lot older than you are, and I've got some wines that I can't drink for another ten years. And I'm thinking maybe my son-in-law is going to going to get to drink those. You might be surprised. Uh, I've been around wine for. I'm probably older than you think I am. Oh, thank you. Yes. Well, much, thank you. Much older. Yes. <laughs> but um, what I found is a lot of times I I don't follow the directions for when you're supposed to, you know when the wine is oh. going to be perfect. Well, how do you know? You just drink a lot, and you get a feel. It's the experience. <laughs> Remember, last month we talked with, uh, with Nathan at Center of Effort, and I think what we learned from that is practice, practice, practice. It's like <laughs> spitting, you know? you can, you got to learn how to spit to survive at a, an oh, event like this. True. That is true. Yeah, that but, is true. Yeah, the thing with wine age is sometimes you drink a wine that's a little young, yeah. but that tells you sort of where it is on its evolutionary curve. Right. And then you come back, and if you have another bottle or another wine from the same producer or region, it'll give you an idea of what that's going to be. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I, I love older white wines. Yes. And I drink them sometimes 10, 20 years after people say that, you know, they'd they be flat and dead and gone. And yes, sometimes they are. <laughs> but, I had an old Oliver Vineyard uh, Chardonnay yeah. from uh, Tally, and it was amazing. But I... I was surprised. Yeah, if if the wine is balanced when you right. put it in the cellar, uh-huh. it's probably going to be balanced mm-hmm. later. And I mean, I grew up drinking old Louis Martini wines, which were <laughs> no cheap and twelve and a half percent, but they would age 20, 30, 40 years, no problem. Yeah. Wow. I hear the music starting up, Dan. So I'm going to stop. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you. I'm talking with Tim at Shamisol now that the music is a little quieter, and I'm just trying his 
Pinot Noir, the 2019 Pinot Noir, and you described it as fruit forward, and I was surprised it would be ready to drink already. Yeah, it's delicious. Uh, 2019 vintage for us was a beautiful vintage. Um, everything that we're trying here tonight at this wonderful event is estate grown. So um, right on our property, we were actually the first planted vineyard in Edna Valley in 1973. Um, yeah, so we I thought Sausalito was. Well, I know. We can kind of argue back and forth. But, but it's a good story either way, and we love our friends and neighbors. Uh, but we planted some, some wonderful pinots. This comes from a, a different type of soil on our property. Our wine's all about our soil. And it's uh, a little rockier soil uh, for us that produces our Khalifa wine. And Khalifa for us is our reserve wine. The name Khalifa is a Native America term we've adopted at Shamazal, and it means the prettiest one or the beautiful one. So it's uh, what we kind of do. You can even see by our labels, not that you're visualizing here in front of us, but we put our little topography on our labels here, which show how important the soil is. Uh, being one of the first wineries here in Edna Valley. So. I have seen a, a display of soils at a variety of wineries, and the difference in the soil is amazing when you see it. And I know there's Stone Corral, which is, what, south of you, or southwest maybe of you, um, and more volcanic things north of you, right? So this is, this is very interesting. Yeah, it's delicious. Thank and I can't you. believe yeah. it's already to drink. Yeah. <laughs> thank well, you. thanks for coming out. Yeah, thank you, Tim. You're very welcome. Enjoy your night. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's very good. I'm talking with Mark from Wolf Vineyards. Tell us a little bit about the vineyard and where you're located and all. Uh, we're in the Edna Valley. Uh, we took over an existing vineyard, which was planted in 1976, the old McGregor property. It was planted with uh, pretty much just Chardonnay vines. And we nursed some of these older vines back to health. Uh, started doing some dry farming until ah. California got a little less rain. Yes. And now we've converted a lot of those vines over to subsurface irrigation. We're actually watering in the ground instead of on the ground. It puts our water, fertilizer, both below where the weeds can get to it. So the vines get it. And we're basically getting away with 50% less irrigation and zero signs of stress. I'm really not surprised. Um, I don't know. Your dad's like a nuclear scientist or something like that. So I know there are lots of jokes about it. it what does it take to use half the water? It all takes a nuclear scientist. So I'm not surprised. You have a lot of events out at Wolf. What kinds of things do you do? One of the newest things that my brother Clint has been uh, implementing is a jam session out there. Um, getting toward winter time, I don't think there's any, any in the near future, but coming up during spring, I uh, invite people out there to play music, have a food truck, and sip a little wine. Um, we also, during summertime, every Friday night, stay open late. After five on a Friday, no one wants to taste wine, they want to drink wine. So we do it by the glass, by the bottle. Also have a food truck in a band so you can get a little dancing on. That's great. I love it. Tell me about your wines. Uh, this evening I brought our Chardonnay, Rosé of Grenache, Pinot Noir, and Syrah. Oh. I had the uh, Rosé of Grenache, which I loved because it's such a hearty grape. And it's just, it was wonderful. It was alive. It was fruity, but not overly fruity. Uh, no, thanks. Oh, I just got offered food, and I turned it down. I can't believe it. Uh, may I try the Syrah? We definitely, definitely may. So this is our estate Syrah. It's a uh, 21. So oh, it's 21. It is. I can drink it now? It's actually very, very soft. 
Uh, we always have two clones in our Syrah. One adds a little smoke, one adds a little spice, and of course you get plenty of fruit there too. Well, I got the, I got the spice for sure. Let me stick my nose back in. I usually get a lot of smoke with Syrahs. I'm not getting as much tonight. It could be because the glass is cold and it's freezing out here, but... <laughs> oh, I got it there. I got it there. Excuse me, this will be a moment of silence. I can't believe I can drink that now, but that is delicious. That is delicious. We have been uh, fortunate enough to get some new equipment in the winery, which is helping make that a little softer. We have a... Uh, a new destemmer crusher and I think it's being a little bit more gentle on the fruit so it's making everything just a little bit fruitier and a little bit softer so nothing I can take credit for. <laughs> <laughs> I get that Mark. If I wanted to lay it down what would you say? How long should I lay it down? I personally prefer younger wines because I tend to have them with food but I think this would easily hold another eight years possibly right. even yeah. ten years. Yeah. Now if I had it with a ribeye I could sooner right? I think so. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. For, I appreciate your talking to us. It's good talking to you. The sunset that night was unbelievable. Just a, a line of bright orange that seemed to never fade as the evening got colder and colder and, and colder. Uh, but I was looking forward to the next day, which was the rare and fine wines section of the event. And I way overdressed for this day. It turned out glorious there in Avila Beach. I'm with Jean-Pierre Wolf. We're at the rare and fine wines tasting part of this. So his son, Mark, has given way to the boss. And I'm going to wait for a minute because you have a customer. So Jean-Pierre from Wolf Vineyards, what did you just pour for that woman? I thought I heard her say Italy. Yeah, I poured our uh, Tiraldigo, which is a rare Italian red, which comes from the northern part of Italy at the border of Italy and Austria. How long have you been growing these grapes? Uh, 25 years. Oh. oh, well, I'm sorry I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, and uh, I imported 1,200 vines from Italy through the University of Bolzano. Describe how it tastes. Would it be like a Chianti or a Barolo? Or? Like Rhine, uh, like you know, an older Barbera. Oh, okay, okay. So I usually tell people, well, it tastes like Tirolago, and I'm not trying to be <laughs> flip about it, but it's very unusual in flavor. Okay. Uh, foremost, it's a wonderful uh, food-pairing wine. Oh, I bet. I bet it is. Well, I'll just have to try it. You know, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> that's right. I'm, I'm happy to try. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Jean-Pierre. Well, that's about all the wine I can drink, I think, today. Uh, what a wonderful time. I ran into some great friends and learned a lot about some more of our great wineries here on the Central Coast. So until next month. Betsy Nash is the grape nut here on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. <laughs> Musician Jake Blunt specializes in the traditional songs of African Americans and claims his music is rooted in care and confrontation. His 2020 album, Spider Tales, was named one of the year's best albums by NPR and The New Yorker. You've maybe heard his music here on KCBX or had the pleasure of seeing him live at the Octagon Barn earlier in the year. 
or at Castoro Cellars last month, Blunt sat down recently with KCBX contributor Tom Wilmer. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer. My name is Jake Blunt. I am from Providence, Rhode Island. Tell me about your music. I perform traditional black folk music. Sometimes that means I'm playing bluegrass and old time stuff with a string band. Sometimes it means I'm doing a little bit of a different thing. But uh, we're excited to be bringing both sounds to Bristol this week. In your cultural nuances, do you go back to the roots of African-American music? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mostly I learned my music off of field recordings from the early to mid 1900s, traditional stuff like that. So Um, Carolina coffee. Chocolate drops, yes, they're good friends of mine. I love their music. Me too, that's what got me into this. Really? Yeah, yeah. when I was first starting to learn to to play this music, I spent a week with Rhiannon Giddens and Hubby Jenkins up at the Augusta Heritage Center in Elkins, West Virginia, and that was really what what got me started. And for me, the banjo that they... Yes. Yeah, it's like, wow, spring me home. Yes. How about going back the roots of African-American music, going back to Africa? Have you done that? Yes, I have been... A little bit unsure how to approach going all the way back to the continent because I don't think, you know, I'm from America. I know how to do the music we have here. I would love to collaborate with someone Mm -hmm. at some point. But on my own, I'm working on a new project now called The New Faith, or I finished it, on Smithsonian Folkways recordings as part of their African-American Legacy series. It's an Afrofuturist work, so it takes all of these old songs that I've been listening to imagines them several hundred years in the future after the changes of the climate crisis have taken place and draws off stuff from like 1688. Whoa. Yeah. So is there a dystopian element there? I don't like to call it that. Mm. I think dystopia implies too much structure. Okay. Um, But we're not in a happy place. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a metaphor going on. There's some teaching some lessons learned from what you're communicating exactly and i think that's what all those old songs are really about when i think about what speaks to me in those old songs especially this is something i did mostly working with spirituals obviously there's a great deal of religious meaning there i'm not a super religious person but i think that there are a lot of lessons about our cultural values and who our ancestors wanted us to grow up to be Mm -hmm. encoded into those songs and i think taking them and putting them in even a more different context than, you know, we are now from where they were when they wrote the songs. Uh, It helps us distance ourselves enough from, I think, the overt religious text that we can more easily understand the more subtle meanings. But the subtle underbed is the human condition. Yes. Right? So the religious is kind of a metaphor or a thematic way to stitch it together. Exactly. When you study and listen and read, going back in time, they're talking to you. Yes. You know, and in what ways have you heard what they're trying to tell you in literal sense? 
I think it can sometimes be hard. There's a little bit of invention that has to go on when you're part of any marginalized group, whether you're a queer person or a black person or a woman who's going back and trying to hear yourself in those old things because the people who were making the music at that time were not empowered to speak openly about their own thoughts and beliefs. So a lot of kind of cryptic messaging. It's going all in on. metaphor. And wow. that means you know, coming out of that, you know, my, my dad grew up on a farm in southeastern Virginia. I am close to that side of my family. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were going down to visit my grandparents, we'd drive past the neighbor's house and my grandfather would say, your great, 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 great granddaddy sat under that tree when he was exercising his master's horses. Wow. That's how close we are to that. Wow. I feel close. I feel like I understand what's being said, mm -hmm. but I think part of the reason why I feel comfortable delving into this Afrofuturist thing and doing so much imagining with my new work is because I've embraced how much imagining I have to do when I'm going back and mm -hmm. imitating that stuff. And even on the concrete level of being a performer, learning off those old recordings, I'm imitating the technology as much as I'm imitating the people. I only know what they sound like through a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder or, you know, a wax cylinder <laughs> at the outside. Wow. So. But in a perfect world, you're trying to go back in time, right? Exactly. And I think one of the cool things about the new project has been being able to go forward and backward all at once mm -hmm. and feel myself as part of a continuous tradition. How powerful. Yeah. And so yourself as a musician, voice, instrument, you know, how do you communicate? I think I'm working on that. Mm -hmm. And I think as the music evolves, I find the need to change a little bit. And when I've been going out presenting the like old school string band bluegrass music, for me, it's all been about kind of saying the names of the people that I learned the songs from, because so many of those were folks who were playing alongside and in some cases even teaching the white musicians who came down to Bristol and got famous in the early days and they never got recorded because mm -hmm. it was believed the black people playing that music couldn't be marketable. Um, I've been wanting to give them the time that they did not have mm -hmm. while they were still here and that's always been a focus of mine. I think with this new work, it comes more from within me than anything else I've done and I'm still figuring out how much of myself to insert. Back in 1927, Bristol Sessions, mm -hmm. they did race records. Mm -hmm. So obviously you studied and delved in there. What did you learn from that? One of the fun things, not fun, but interesting mm -hmm. things that I have come to understand from looking back into that history is we treat the race record, hillbilly record divide largely as this thing from the past, but we see it remade in so many ways, even in the new music that's coming out. Really? And that's pretty powerful. Yeah, it's at, it's at the root of our current genre classification system. I mean, the, the, the race and hillbilly record divide mm -hmm. set the stage for the evolution of country and bluegrass as white genres and blues and R&B and soul as black genres. Whereas before so you're, what you're implying is segregation. Exactly. Exactly. And in the in the moment when the race records and hillbilly records were being split, these were musicians who've been playing alongside each other. They would have all played a little bit of each other's music. Mm -hmm. The traditions would have fed into one another all over the place. And the record industry in those early days created a financial incentive for black people to sound one way so their records would sell and white people to sound one way so their records would sell. Mm -hmm. And even today, when we hear people like gatekeeping what country looks or sounds like or what folk music looks or sounds like, 
we're recreating this segregationist logic from a hundred years ago. That's it it plays out over and over again. That's really powerful stuff. Yeah. Somehow in my mind, maybe I'm naive, but I think I hope and I think in my mind we're beyond that. But no. Yeah, well, in some ways we are. Mm -hmm. You know, we've come to understand that it isn't right to group people based on race and that, you know, we, we would never sell things as race records today. Mm -hmm. right. And that is in and of itself a step. But at the same time, you know, there have been many journalists who've pointed out how black artists get pigeonholed at the Grammys into very specific categories. And that's just one example. In some ways, the genres that we've inherited have the same pattern to them, even if the labels have changed. Mm -hmm. Let's go back in time in your life. You're a kid. Yeah. At what point did you kind of get it, music, both voice and instrument? Man, I, I consider myself somewhat of a late bloomer compared to most of my peers. I play music with a lot of people who started, you know, when they were ages four through 10. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started playing the electric guitar when I was 12, but I was terrible at it. And I didn't really get good at music until I was probably 17 years old. And I picked up an acoustic guitar and then I went off to college and had my first banjo lessons. And that was the first thing I'd ever been good at. Oh, <laughs> so I, I took it and ran with it. And here I am today. How funny. Did you ever play around with violin, fiddle? I got one as a graduation present from high school, and it took me about a year to work up the courage to go to my, you know, college music department and be like, can I just take violin lessons? <laughs> and went into the violin lessons and kind of told the guy, I don't really care about classical music, but I want to play the fiddle. Can you help me mm -hmm. not hurt myself and sound okay? And he was like, this is interesting. I'm down. <laughs> oh, cool. So I, I got a little bit of the exercises and the mechanical approach from that, mm -hmm. but I've never been classically trained in a real way. Can you play by ear? Yes, yeah. I, I can only play by ear. It's becoming a problem, actually. <laughs> oh, funny. So going forward, you have a group. Yes. And how many talk to us about? who you are and what you do yeah well i tour sometimes in a few different formats just depending on the situation but uh, on this run and for most of the next several months i will have a quartet with me a fiddler named george jackson from nashville a bassist named nelson williams from new orleans and a guitarist named gus trich from state college pennsylvania and uh you know all acoustic uh, it's guitar. sometimes all acoustic, <laughs> but as we're doing this new project, you know, this is the start of the release tour for the new faith. So we're starting to mix in other stuff, um, and really, yeah, start to trouble the timeline in the ways that I'm trying to do in my work where I'm playing this, like, you know, five string banjo with the goat skin head. And then we have Gus playing through, you know, this Vox amp getting this real vintage guitar tone. And then I have like Ableton and MIDI controllers just doing all of the time periods at one time. It's all starting to melt together in a way that's really exciting for us. It, it works. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we are doing some acoustic sets here and there. I don't think we're ever going to get tired of playing that stuff. That's cool. And where are you touring these days? Oh, man, we're going everywhere. We're doing kind of the southeast, uh, the upper south, up to the Midwest on this run. We do the northeast in October. We do the west coast in November. And then in December, we're doing the deep south. Cool. Where in the West Coast and Deep South? Uh, the West Coast, 
really the whole thing. We're going from Seattle all the way to Los Angeles, I think. Before um, we started recording, we talked about San Francisco and Oakland. Right? Oh, yeah. I'll Are be you, there. Freight and Salvage. There? Yes, it's happening. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 So that'll be fun. Deep South, I think we're, we're also doing a, a widespread. I think we're going, you know, starting somewhere up in these parts, headed down toward Florida and then over to New Orleans. And I think that's where we're packing it in for the year. Get to see our family for the holidays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take a break. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your day job. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I I feel lucky to have made it work all this time. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's hard and it's getting harder these days. It but... is. And part of it is the industry. Yes. Battling against you to make money off of Spotify or whatever. Exactly. And I think, you know, the Spotify thing is a problem. Yes. Mm-hmm. I do think that there was a problem that it, it answered in the form of piracy mm-hmm. um, that we now are dealing with much less because it's there. On the other hand, I think, you know, that's one, you know, we don't make revenue off of recorded music anymore. These days, because of the pandemic, a lot of the venues are on a shoestring budget and they can't pay us very much. A lot of the audience is on a shoestring budget because of inflation Mm -hmm. and they can't buy things everywhere we're supposed to get money from has no money right now. It's like a three steps removed problem. And, you know, airfares are through the roof. It's really hard to keep going right now. So looking forward, is there any ideas, any hopes for monetizing and making the art of music viable? I think that there is a way. For me, what that looks like is really investing in my local and regional community Mm -hmm. rather than focusing on these giant tours that cover the whole country. Maybe think about what we can do really investing in local talent at home, whether we're talent buyers, whether we're artists who are trying to figure out who to share our platforms with or who to hire for our bands. Whether we have people near us that we can work with and that helps us financially and that we don't have to worry about plane fare, we don't have to rent cars necessarily, mm-hmm. and it helps the environment. These problems are all connected to one another. I think that embracing our own local musical ecosystems that kept us fed for millennia before this recording industry we're all used to came into being, I think that's going to be ultimately the way forward. But. You know, in the meantime, I think all the artists are just realizing we're going to have to be adaptable as far as ensemble size and Mm -hmm. length of tour and everything like that. Well, I like your idea of regional, local. There's so many elements that are win-win. Yeah, exactly. I think we would see a groundswell of diversity in Mm -hmm. music, uh, both in the people sense and also the sound sense. I think that more people would feel like art was open to them as a participatory thing rather than just as a spectator. Yeah. I would be excited to see us reinvest in that. Well, I'm looking forward to hear you, hearing you on stage. Well, thanks yeah. for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And only because they gave me 15 minutes with yeah. you. We, uh, we're out of time. Yeah. But how cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank uh, you. I'm ready for a hug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, to learn more about your world, where would you direct us? If you would like to go to my website, jakeblunt.com, B-L-O-U-N-T. I have all of my stuff on there, and I also have a big webpage called Black String Band Resources, where you can click through and find audio recordings, movies, books, articles, all sorts of things to read about the history of this tradition. Jake, thank you so much. Thanks Way for cool. having me. My pleasure. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer. Dead children, oh yes, 
didn't it? You know, did didn't it? Oh, mellow, didn't it rain? Well, it rained for the days, it rained for the nights. Was no land nowhere in sight. God sent the raven to spread the news. Hoist his wings and away he flew to the east, to the west, north, to the south. All day, all night, how it rained, how it rained. Oh, tell me, didn't it rain, or rain, or rain, children? Rain, oh my lord, didn't it? You know, did, didn't it? Oh, my lord, didn't it rain? Knock at the window, knock at the door. Crying, brother, can't you take a couple more? Brother said, well, your wallet looks a little thin. If you can't pay, you better learn to swim. Water rising in the morning. Water rising. Water rising in the evening. Keep rising all day long. Keep rising all night long. Tell me, didn't it rain, 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 children? Rain, oh my lord, didn't it? Did you know, did didn't it? Whoa, my lord, didn't it rain? Didn't It Rain by Jake Blunt from their Smithsonian Folkways album, The New Faith. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. We're going to take a short break. When we return, Father Ian will be playing with food. Welcome back to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. I'm Carol Tangeman. And finally, there's still time to enjoy the bounty of persimmons this season. There are two main types here on the Central Coast, and it is crucially important to know how to tell them apart. Father Ian is playing with food. This episode is from the KCBX archives. I rent a house in San Luis, and there is a persimmon tree in the backyard. I somehow got the impression that being bountiful was a characteristic of persimmons. So when I realized that I had a persimmon tree, I immediately knew that it was going to be a challenge. You see, I believe wasting food is unethical and immoral, so I naturally want to find good uses for each and every persimmon on that tree. 
Fortunately, I have a natural distribution center that is my church. It is also an opportunity to do some really fun playing with food. First, I had to find out what these oranger-than-orange fruits are and where they came from. So I met up with an expert in a diner in Santa Maria. Good morning, Father Ian. Thank you so much for having me here today. My name is Alicia Taff, and uh, I represent the California Rare Fruit Growers Central Coast Chapter. The persimmon that most folks are familiar with are the hachia and the fuyu. The hachia being the heart-shaped or pointy-ended fruit, and the fuyu being the more squatty, almost pumpkin-shaped fruit that's hard. They were imported, uh, brought in mm, probably in, with a lot of migrant workers. Japan and um, also China, persimmons are indigenous from those areas we have the luxury of enjoying those fruits here today. Persimmons are extraordinarily hardy. They tolerate extreme cold. They love the heat um, and they are prolific producers. They are not difficult to grow. If they're happy in your area, you'll have more fruit than you know what to do with. Alicia had more to say about the production and distribution of this Japanese delight. They require adequate water. Um, I wouldn't say they're drought tolerant in that regard. They require adequate water. They grow on the central coast. They grow inland in the central valley. Uh, you can grow them where it's very cold. So they, they just, they do remarkably well. They're prolific. I think it takes them a little while to get established. I mean, at least the people that I am around, we know about persimmons. I think because it's not a common fruit, it isn't an orange apple or a pear, you know, a banana, but, but more people are getting to know about it and realize that it's healthful for you. It's a wonderful tree to have in your yard because it does produce so much. You can share with your neighbors, you can bake and cook with them. There are numerous commercial producers here in California. In terms of commercial production for hachia, the challenge is that people like to buy a product and then eat it right away. They're just ready to go. Hachias aren't designed that way. Hachias need to be bledded. And what that means is before all of this cross, uh, you know, transcontinental shipping, people would wait until the fruit frosted on the tree. And once it, it frosted hard, the fruit gets very soft. And that removes the astringency from the fruit. And then you're able to eat it as is. You basically, a lot of people just cut it and scoop it out with a spoon. It's delectable. Or they would um, make it into the puddings, the cakes, the cookies, you name it. So the hachias require that they are extraordinarily soft, like an avocado that you wouldn't want to eat. So they have to be very soft. So that makes it difficult for you sitting, you know, sitting on the fruit at home. A lot of times they don't get shipped because people don't know what to do with them and they think the fruit has gone bad by the time that it's soft. But it's not. That's the prime um, opportunity to do something with the hachia fruit. And what else is interesting is that there isn't really anything more to say about persimmons. They are a fruit. They are from Japan. There are two kinds. Hachia persimmons the ones that look like a giant orange acorn, need to ripen, like Alicia said, until they are very difficult to handle, like an overripe tomato. When I gave them away at church, I took them in hard and warned people to make sure they got super soft before they eat them. It also means that I either have to eat them or cook with them. I can't store them. So what do I do? Here's what Alicia had in mind. So when you have a prolific producing plant, the question is, what do I do with all of this, right? Sometimes, this is fabulous in, uh, in Japan, they do what's called a hoshigaki style persimmon. So they take the hard 
hachia persimmon and peel it and then they hang it by the calyx which is the stem on top and they go through and they massage the fruit which allows the sugar to come out and it preserves the fruit so rather than wait till everything is soft and squishy and you can't do anything with it they actually preserve the fruit in that manner it's delicious absolutely delicious we do that at home at my house um, my husband peels the fruit by hand we use an apple peeler which is a lot of fun and then he hangs the fruit until it's dried and then we actually stuff it with pecans which is delicious then that keeps a lot longer the curry sounds really nice but i'm not going to peel and hang them and i'm certainly not going to massage them when i looked online to see what the japanese do with them i got a bit worried their way of preserving them results in something that looks like a dead mouse Judy Starr of Star Ranch Winery outside of Paso Robles has a driveway lined with persimmons. Maybe she has some suggestions. They are mostly Hychia persimmons. On the driveway, I'd say there are about four Fuyu persimmon trees. Now, Fuyus are very easy to deal with because they're like an apple. You can eat them when they're crisp, fresh off the tree, bite right into them. They're delicious. But you can't eat Hychia persimmons when they are crisp because they're very, very astringent. And they will make your mouth pucker in the most unpleasant sort of way. The only way you can eat a fresh Hychia persimmon that is palatable is if it is so ripe that it has the consistency of a water balloon. It's very, very, very soft. It's like yogurt. In fact, it makes a nice yogurt accompaniment. The problem with Hycheas is that they have to go to the store when they're hard. So when you see them in the markets, they're quite hard. People take them home, they bite into them, they say, I don't like that. And why would they like that? Because it's much, much too bitter. As a ripe product, they're too fragile to ship. So they're, 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 it's a difficult marketing thing for persimmons. When I came here 16 years ago and I acquired the persimmon line driveway by accident, I was stunned by the fact that there was so much fruit going to waste. My daughter was living here, so we set about determining what we could do with those persimmons. We bought a small kitchen dehydrator, and we peeled them with an apple peeler, which was a very tedious task, and we dried them, and we found out that they were actually quite delicious. So the first year we had this tedious operation whereby we dried them and we actually brought them in when they were firm because you can only slice them when they're firm and they're also not palatable. So what made us do it, I'm not quite sure. We realized that what happened if you dried them low at a low temperature and very slowly uh, for a long period of time that they ripen essentially. So the flavor of a, a dried persimmon becomes that of, uh, it's almost pumpkin-like, pumpkin, sweet potato, but very, very, very sweet. But sweet in a, in a more vegetable way, not sweet like a dried apple or that kind of sweet. So it's a, what I call a savory sweet. Being in the wine business, that was a plus because they're actually quite good with wine. So uh, it was just a, it was a discovery that we made uh, just because we felt we had to find something to do with them. And I have looked for dried persimmons and found dried persimmons in many Whole Foods stores and large grocery stores. But for the most part, they tend to be Fuyus. I personally don't think that the Fuyus are as flavorful as the Hychias. And they don't make as pretty a dried product as the Hychias. The Hychias are a very vibrant 
beautiful orange, very seasonal for the time of year in which they ripen. The fuyus, once they're dried, are turn sort of a brownish color. So they they don't have that that really pretty, pretty, pretty orange that you get in the uh, hychaeas. When we're finished, I do four to six hundred pounds of dried persimmons a year. I think, generally speaking, it takes eight pounds of raw product to make one pound of dried fruit. If I want 400 pounds of dried persimmons, that means I need 3,200 pounds of fruit to produce that. That's roughly a ton and a half. After we've picked a ton and a half of fruit, it looks like we've taken nothing from the driveway. There you go, someone else who was playing with food, playing with persimmons, and came up with a sideline business. I tasted the dried persimmons. They are very, very tasty. It was stunningly beautiful to drive along the S-shaped road flanked by leafless trees with what seemed like bright orange Christmas decorations. When looking for others who were doing creative dishes with persimmons, I came across a restaurant in Los Alamos, Valle Fresh, run by Chef Conrad Gonzalez. So persimmons for us is a seasonal uh, fruit ingredient that we like to use during this time on a local farm. We've pickled them and we've also made salsa out of them. So we use it as a garnishment on the tacos. We'll do like a smoked salmon with a persimmon salsa. For us, the fuyu works perfect because the texture is really good. It's almost like the texture of our unripe tomatoes. It cuts well, it lends well for a, a pico de gallo style salsa. I've also pickled them, a quick pickled version, and it holds up pretty well. But as far as like the other kinds, I would do maybe a jelly or a chutney. That would probably work really well, and you can can that, and it will hold for, for years. You know, I would probably mix it with maybe something of like a pork, but also use some type of vinegar also with it, maybe like a pickled vegetable of some sort, pickled onion or jalapeno. Maybe you're getting the pork, the fattiness from the pork, the sweet, and then the spicy. That would probably lend very well, yes. Unfortunately, I can't do that kind of salsa with the type of persimmons I have but I might be able to do the more saucy type of salsa, and I'm not going to make jelly. It is so very orange, I can't believe it. So I'm gonna smell it first. It doesn't really have a smell, it has a smell of fruit. It just smells like fruit. And I'm gonna taste it. And do I have a chaser somewhere? Just in case it's not very good. Here we go. Mmm. Again, like its smell, it tastes like fruit. It doesn't taste like anything else but fruit. It's good. It's sweet, not super sweet, but sweeter than most things. It's probably on par with a ripe peach. From a seven very overripe persimmons that I put in the blender with the peel and the seeds and everything. I didn't do anything but take the stem off. Blended them up, pushed them through a sieve. I now have about six cups of bright orange pulp ready to be used for something. So here we go. I now have enough pulp to last me the rest of my life. I really need to figure out what to do with it. Sure, I'll make some cookies for coffee hour at church, but what else? I'll try making a saucy salsa. If you think about it, not all salsas in Mexican restaurants are chunky. There are smooth ones as well. So I'm going to see what I can do to take some sweet and some heat and mix it up to make something really nice. So what I'm going to do here is take some pulp from the hychea persimmon, some serrano chili, some cilantro, and see if it can be a nice dipping sauce and then maybe mix it with a vegetable for a side dish. And of course, 
I have a tendency to use what's in my fridge. So I just happen to have this mixture of celery, onions, and parsley, and then I've got some puree, and then I've got a serrano, some garlic, and I'm gonna put it all in the blender with a little bit of tomato as well, and the cilantro. Um, it tastes like a sweet jam of persimmons with cilantro and serrano in it. It's not bad, but it didn't really change the character very much. Maybe I need to make it hotter. I'm going to put some more serrano in it and see what happens. I changed it a little bit. Put the lid back on and let it sit for a while because with all sauces, the flavors need to meld. I tried various ways of making the salsa to my liking. It's just too sweet. So I left it in the fridge for about a week while I thought about what to do with it. Conrad in Los Alamos suggested working with pork and jalapenos. Let's see what I can do in that milieu. I found a Middle Eastern chutney recipe that I'm going to make as a sauce. I'm gonna use about two cups of the puree. I'm gonna skip the sugar that's involved in this recipe because I can always add it later. I'm gonna use a little bit of cider vinegar, some lemons, skip the raisins, a little bit of ginger root. This recipe calls for a lot. Cinnamon, ground pepper, cumin, salt, ground cardamom, which you have to find in a specialty shop, ground coriander, star anise, and some cloves. Throw that all in the pot, let it boil, and then start working on all the other parts of the meal. I cooked a pork chop under the broiler just with plain salt and pepper because I wanted to see how the sauce worked with it. I sauteed myself some spinach with garlic and onions and I made myself some brown rice. I'm serving it with a drier red wine to balance the sweetness and we'll see how it goes. And the true test is in the tasting. So a little bite of just the pork chop, which is perfectly done. The persimmon sauce, which now looks like pumpkin puree because of the spices that I put in it. Mmm, mmm, absolutely perfectly balanced. The sauce by itself is wonderful with those spices from the Middle East. It was still sweet when it was in the pan. I didn't add any of the sugar that the chutney recipe called for. This combination isn't sweet and meat at all. It's a really wonderful, warm combination. And I take a drink of my Argentinian Malbec. It all seems perfect. I think I've made something here. And I tried another Middle Eastern way of using persimmons. I've been thinking about what kind of main dishes have sweet fruit in them. And I'm thinking about things that might have pears or apples, even orange juice or something like that. Sticky ribs came to mind, but I don't think I have the time to put together um, some sticky ribs. And to be honest, I'm not really good at cooking ribs anyway. But I do know that in the Middle East, they do like lamb and some type of fruit. So I liked that sauce that I had with the pork. I think I'm going to do kofta, lamb meatballs, simmered in a persimmon sauce with some nice earthy spices in it. So I've got my grand lamb here from the store. Garlic, red pepper, black pepper, cumin, some onions, a little bit of water, and a teaspoon of salt. And I'm going to mix that all up and fry them and then simmer them in the sauce. I've made the lamb mixture for the kofta put all the spices in it, dusted them with a little bit of flour, and now I'm gonna fry them in some hot oil. 
After searing them a bit, I've taken them out and dabbed them and taken the oil out of the pan, but I kept the scrapings in the pan to give the flavor there. And then I took the puree that I made. It's been sitting with the spices in it and the spices melding and getting more flavorful. And I've poured that back into the pan and put the meatballs in it to simmer until they're done all the way through. And then I'm going to serve them with some rice and perhaps a side of sautéed spinach because that's what I have in the fridge. So we've got this beautiful meal here of basmati rice and these meatballs with persimmon sauce with my side of spinach. And we're going to give it a taste. This is really nice. As I said in the beginning, I'm not a real fan of sweet and meat or fruit and meat. But this is really nice because their persimmons, when they cook down lose a little bit of their sweetness, but gain a little bit of savoriness and complement the gamey flavor of the lamb. Mmm, I think I've done a good job here. And I think I would recommend this. And what it's making me think is, the next thing I'm gonna try, I think I'm gonna try persimmon braised pulled pork. I've got a lot of persimmons. So putting a pork butt in a crock pot or persimmon puree, if I can come up with something like this, I think we've got a winner. Those two recipes were winners, definitely. Working with persimmons in main dishes involves figuring out how to balance the incredible sweetness of the fruit. Circle right, do ho do ho, circle right, do ho do ho, circle right, do ho do ho, shake them simmons down. Circle left, do ho do ho, circle left, do ho do ho, circle left, do ho do ho, shake them simmons down. I don't want anyone to shake down any more persimmons. I have plenty, thanks. Playing with food in a way that deals with the sweetness got me thinking, and I still have that salsa in the fridge. This salsa is never going to be to my liking, so what do I do with it? I've got about two cups here, maybe a cup and a half. I have decided that I'm gonna try Hychia persimmon pulled pork. So I'm gonna take this salsa with some tomato sauce, with the spices that you would use for pulled pork, and put it in the crock pot. So here we go. Here I am several hours later, eight and a half to be exact, and I'm gonna try this pulled pork with persimmons. It's got about two cups of persimmon pulp. It's got all the spices and the serrano that I put into the salsa. I put in a half a can of tomatoes and a little bit of tomato paste, some cumin, coriander, black pepper, salt, paprika. Here we go. Mmm, mmm. That's kind of nice. It's it's different. You, All the flavors blended into something very different than you expect. Because you can't really taste persimmon, but you can't taste tomato. And it's I, I think I actually magically blended some spices together, which I've never done before, to create something new. Let me taste some of the sauce. Mmm. Wow. There's no hint of sweetness at all. But it's not bitter like you'd have if you had tomatoes. I think I made a new creation, and that's what playing with food is all about. This has been a successful playing with food. I didn't think that I would be able to make anything except cookies, cake, and bread. The next potluck, I'll start the pulled pork earlier so I can get feedback from others. I have about 10 containers of pulp in my freezer, all measured out into two cups each. I don't know if I'll have the stamina each year to process the persimmons. The persimmon tree is stunningly beautiful when the fruit is ripe. I understand why people grow them. The fruit is tasty, but the quantity is overwhelming. 
If you have a persimmon tree, there are loads of ways to prepare them. When your neighbors won't take any more of them, pulp them and freeze it. Alicia considers us lucky. We can grow just about anything here in California, and we're so blessed to have the variety of fruits and vegetables that we do. And persimmons at this time of the year are, are so special. If you think about it way back in the day, what fresh thing were you gonna get after it frosted? What fresh fruit or vegetable were you gonna get? Nothing. So that's what makes the persimmon kind of special. You were still gonna get a fresh, sweet fruit treat at this very cold and stark time of the year. So that was important, you know, before we had shipping and, and refrigeration and storage. And so the people figured, people figured out how not to waste these precious gifts. This is Issues and Ideas for KCBX, Public Radio for the Central Coast. That was Father Ian playing with food. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.